and we have two very distinguished uh, speakers, uh, and I'll introduce them in the order that they will present. Uh, uh, John Thompson, uh, Emeritus Fellow at St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, will start us off. Uh, uh, John has uh, spent a long career forging uh, expertise in uh, uh, the history of American foreign policy. He's well known of uh, uh, really one of the most eminent scholars in the field uh, uh, and without doubt uh, the author of the best single volume, perhaps I shouldn't even say single, single, uh, single volume, best biography uh, of uh, Woodrow Wilson in the, uh, um, the Routledge is Profile in Power series which was published in 2003. And uh, last year, uh, he published with Cornell University Press, A Sense of Power, uh, The Roots of America's Global Role. So uh, we'll be hearing his thoughts uh, based on uh, that volume this evening. And after uh, John Thompson, it'll be uh, David Milne, uh, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of East Anglia. Uh, David also has a, a very distinguished record of publications, uh, the book for which I know him best, uh, I'm not saying it's, uh, 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 the, the one that I know him best for is America's Rasputin, uh, Walt Rosso and the Vietnam War, published by Hill and Wang in 2008. Uh, and uh, he too published a book last year, it's up on the board, uh, World Making the Art and Science of US Foreign Policy, uh, that was published by uh, Farah Strauss and Giroux in New York in 2015. So we're going to start off with John. The speakers will uh, speak for 20 minutes, 25 minutes max. I'll have to gather them into silence at that point. Uh, and then we will open it out to the floor. So, uh, uh, John. Thank you very much, Ian. Over the last six or seven decades, the United States has played an extraordinarily active and wide-ranging role in world politics. Excuse me, I hadn't realized that I was so hoarse. This is a, a cold that must be coming on. America has guaranteed the security of countries across the globe, including such wealthy ones as Japan and Germany, as well as threatened ones like Taiwan and Israel. At the present time, significant numbers of American troops are stationed in no less than 65 countries. Its influence in such organizations as the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization has been much greater than that of any other state. And the position taken by Washington has been an important factor in international issues everywhere in the world, and domestic ones, too, in many countries. Sustaining this extensive role has made a heavy demand on America's resources. The United States has devoted a significantly greater proportion of its GNP to its armed forces and the conduct of foreign policy than have other Western democracies. And it is engaged more often in military conflict. How do we explain its assumption of these commitments and burdens? That's the question I address in my recent book, A Sense of Power. I begin by arguing that there's no obvious or simple answer to the question. In the first place, I contest the commonly expressed view that this global engagement and the wide-ranging commitments have been demanded by the requirements of America's own security. 
It's often been argued that the traditional policy of non-involvement in the politics and wars of Europe and Asia had to be abandoned, had to be abandoned, because the conditions that made it possible ceased to exist. In this view, the United States had been protected from overseas attack in the 19th century by three major factors. Firstly, its isolated position, separated by great oceans from all major powers that might pose a threat to it. Secondly, British command of the seas and the general congruence of American and British interests. And thirdly, the balance of power that prevailed in Europe between the Napoleonic Wars and World War I, which not only prevented the outbreak of a major war on that continent that might have spread to North America, but also meant that no single power was ever in the position to control the, uh, the resources of the whole of Europe in a way that might have enabled it to contemplate attacking North America. These are commonly seen as the conditions of American safety from attack in the 19th century. And again, it's commonly argued that in the 20th century, each of these were successively and progressively removed. Firstly, the barrier constituted by the oceans, it is argued, was at first reduced and then virtually eliminated by advancing technology in the form of steamships, of aircraft, and, and eventually of intercontinental missiles. Secondly, British control of the Atlantic became dependent upon American assistance, as was shown in 1917, and then more dramatically in 1940-41, and then unmistakably, of course, after the Second World War with the decline of British um, naval capabilities. Finally, the maintenance of a balance of power in Europe or in the Eurasian continent as a whole, again, had required America to throw its own weight into the scales to prevent a hegemonic power, Germany or the Soviet Union, from assuming dominance over the whole of those resources and thereby threatening America. Well, that's the conventional argument about security. And it seems to me that there are problems with it. First of all, America's geographic position has continued in the 20th century and up to the present time to make the country a very difficult one to attack. And in fact, the military implications and the strategic implications of these technological advances in warfare are often the reverse of what is commonly claimed. Uh, they've actually enhanced rather than diminished uh, America's security. For example, uh, in terms of naval power, the transition from sailing ships to steamships reduced the range of battleships, and that made the oceans more, not less, of a barrier to hostile navies. As John Keegan has pointed out, Nelson's fleets, crossed, uh, with wind power, uh, crossed to and fro across the Atlantic uh, without problems. But the battleships which depended upon coal or oil were constrained by the need, by the capacity of their coal bunkers or oil tankers. And the German battleships of the First World War, for example, had a very limited range. Likewise, armies, uh, modern armies, are dependent on sophisticated and customized munitions, which would make a transoceanic invasion uh, very hard to envisage. Whereas, of course, in the 18th and 19th century, in the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, 
a significant military force was deployed by the British on the North American continent. Thirdly, the development of aviation, of air power, actually aided, made it more easy to defend North America because they could attack from close by bases. American aircraft could attack any invading force um, more easily than trying to protect a coastline without any such, uh, such um, facility. So that's one reason why the security argument in terms of America's safety from attack doesn't seem to me to work very well. And the other is that it completely ignores um, the great expansion of America's own power between the 19th century and the 20th, uh, and the effects of this upon America's capacity to defend itself unaided. The uh, American economic growth in the late 19th and early 20th century was spectacular, and it's really kind of comparative to really to that of China in the last few decades. And a measure of its speed and scale, I think, is steel production, which Winston Churchill uh, described in his era as a rather decisive index of military power. On the eve of the First World War, America's steel output um, was about twice that of Germany, but Germany was producing more than that of Britain, France, and Russia combined, which helps to explain why Germany did so well in the First World War, was able to hold those enemies at bay, but America's output was already, before the First World War, twice that of Germany. So, although I think it's easy to see that free security um, was over in the 20th century for the United States, uh, it wouldn't have been prudent for it to continue to spend as little on, of its GMP on defense as it had in the 19th century. The actual extent of America's security from attack was greater in the 20th century than it had been earlier. Um, and given the scale of its own productive power and resources, the country could rely solely on its own efforts and strength to deter or defeat any assault on it. And that, of course, is true still in the era of intercontinental missiles and nuclear weapons. These did indeed at last make a devastating attack upon the American homeland technically feasible in a way that it had not been before. But the way to counter that threat was clearly through deterrence and the, uh, the plausibility of a second strike retaliatory capability. And that has been um, entirely self-generated by the United States. Uh, doesn't depend on any other country to deploy its um, retaliatory capacity. And in fact, you can make a good case, I think, that in terms of the phys physical security of America itself, in the nuclear age, it's been reduced rather than enhanced by its involvement in world politics, because that involvement has carried the risk of uh, involvement in wars which start elsewhere, and especially the strategy of extended deterrence in which the United States uh, seemed to imply that it would engage in nuclear war for the protection of other countries, um, would obviously uh, bring risks that a, a, a non-involved policy, an isolationist policy, would not have done. So, um, that's one argument. Another common argument is that America's economic interests have required uh, it to take this active and worldwide economic role, but that too seems to me very un unsatisfactory as an explanation. For one thing, uh, foreign trade and overseas investment made a relatively small contribution to America's GNP, particularly in the period when the United States 
came to assume this extensive world role, that is to say, in the first half of the 20th century. In fact, in that period, the importance of exports and, of, and national trade generally to the American economy was diminishing rather than growing. Um, as um, the, the country became more industrialized, the percentage of uh, its production which was exported declined. Um, it had been in the, um, in, in the 19th century somewhere between 6 and 7% of GMP, um, about, and, and it was estimated to be even earlier in the decades after independence. But by the 20th century, it was no more than about 4 to 5% of GMP, and that figure it itself exaggerates uh, the situation, because if you consider the North American economy as a whole, um, then um, it would be reduced because about um, a quarter of America's exports went to Canada and Mexico. So it was only three quarters of that figure of four or five percent which was actually going overseas. Secondly, these exports and overseas investments have not been dependent upon America's political or security commitments. American goods and capital have not been forced upon foreign countries at the point of a gun. And in uh, preventing discrimination against U.S. exports in international trade negotiations, the greatest leverage has been provided not by America's political and military role, but by the size of the American market, which has meant that in, uh, the, the trade in question has been, for every, in every case, proportionally more important to the other countries involved than to the United States itself. The third and final general explanation for America's assumption of a global role uh, that seems to me unsatisfactory, is that somehow it's an inevitable product of the sheer scale of America's potential power in the economic, in the international system. Uh, that's how great powers always behave, it is said, extending their influence and interests as far as they are able. But that assumption too is questionable, it seems to me, both in theoretical terms and in the light of history. In the first place, it neglects the costs of wielding power. Almost every means by which a state can exert leverage in international affairs involves some sacrifice on its part. This is obvious in the case of wars, where the price is bound to be paid in the form of casualties as well as money, but it also applies to the deployment or even maintenance and being of armed forces and to military and other forms of foreign aid. Even economic sanctions and preferential terms for trade or investment always involve some sort of opportunity cost. And recognizing that the exercise of power requires effortful activity involving the sacrifice of other desirable goods makes it less plausible, it seems to me, to view it simply as a universal human instinct. The psychological restraints on the drive to domination do not consist only of altruistic feelings and ethical considerations. They may also include the desire for an easy and comfortable life. And since this desire is likely to be higher amongst at the priorities of ordinary citizens than of heads of states, it might be assumed to be particularly salient in democracies like the United States. And the second objection to the assumption that great, power always, great powers always expand their influence and interests as far as they can comes from history. America itself is a prime example in this respect. By the end of World War I, it was clearly the most powerful state in the world already, but this did not lead it to greatly expand the scope of its foreign policy ambitions. Throughout the interwar period, it was notably averse to assuming any sort of overseas commitment or risking involvement in a foreign war. Before the 1940s, a remarkably small proportion of the nation's vast resources was devoted to foreign policy enterprises or to military strength. So that's a kind of 
ground clearing. The inadequacies of such general explanations suggest to me the need for a historical one. And so in the book, I've sought to answer the question, why did America assume this global role by exploring how it did so? And it was clear what period such a study should focus on. Before that great economic growth in the later 19th century that I've just referred to, America lacked the capacity to play a large part in world politics. It just didn't have the resources to do so. By the end of the Truman administration in 1952, the country had clearly assumed a global role and also developed the instrumentalities to play such a role on a long-term basis. So my book is a study of the evolution of American foreign policy and of the internal debates about it in the intervening years. Between the late 19th century, when it became a matter of choice rather than of necessity that America should or should not involve itself in world politics, to the period by which the die was cast, essentially, and, 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 and serious retreat from that role was no longer uh, politically contemplated. Now, one central issue in looking at that period and of the evolution of American policy and debate about it is clearly the extent to which American involvement was driven by external events or, by the product, or was the product of an internal dynamic. And uh, defenders of American foreign policy general, generally present it as a response to external threats, whereas critics uh, commonly attribute it to an internally generated expansionist or imperialist thrust. My own view is that external events did play a crucial role, particularly the two world wars and the effects of these on the other countries involved in them. But I also argue that these external events did not determine the response of the United States to them. America was not forced to act in a certain way in order to preserve its uh, vital interests. As a nation, it had choices between options which were quite viable. So we need to explain the choices that were made. And in seeking to do so in the book, I often take issue with other historians, notably over the reasons for American entry into World War I, American entry into World War II, how and why isolationism became discredited, and the reasons why the United States during the Truman administration came to make extensive overseas commitments and to develop the agencies I've just referred to. But all these specific disagreements about the historical episodes are really aspects of my dissent from these two influential explanations of America's global role that I've already referred to. On the first, uh, the, the, that presented by realists who attributed to the needs of national security and the demands of the international system. And on the other hand, by revisionists who see it as the product of a drive to create an open-door world for the um, preservation and flourishing of American capitalism. Now, each of these interpretations, which have been advanced by many historians over recent decades, um, is buttressed by evidentiary support from contemporary documents. Statements by presidents and other policymakers invoking these reasons, security uh, particularly, or in, in some cases uh, economic interests, internal governmental uh, memoranda, uh, contributions to public debate. Now much of my counter-argument against that form of evidence takes the form of showing that the claims that American policy was 
driven by a real need to protect its security or promote its economic prosperity, are not supported by facts that were in the public arena at the time. Now, when I say that, when I say that these arguments that were made were not really good arguments in the light of information which was clearly available at the time to anyone who bothered to find out, people say that the problem is that I'm not dealing with perceptions, I'm dealing with realities, and what matters is perception. Now, my response to that objection is a methodological point that I make in the introduction, and since it seems to me crucial, I will just reiterate it briefly here. Perceptions can only be accepted as an adequate explanation, it seems to me, if they were rational in the light of the available evidence. When they fail that test, when beliefs fail the test of being rational in the light of the available evidence at the time, adherence to them is not self-explanatory. We have to then ask, why did people believe these things if they were not clearly demonstrable in, in terms of the information they had and rational deductions from that information? Now, that's not an issue about sincerity, but it is an issue about the form of historical explanation. So, finally, both the interpretations I'm challenging see policy choices and the attitudes that led to these as ultimately explicable in terms of concrete material interests, whether physical safety from attack or economic interests. By contrast, I see less tangible factors as crucial. Uh, one is the strong connection with Europe felt by most Americans, particularly those in the class from which almost all policymakers in those years were drawn. The sense is that they belong to a common Western civilization, and this was often buttressed by strong ties, particularly with Britain. This is an obvious point, but one which is frequently neglected in treatments of American foreign policy. Another was the belief that America's great power brought with it a wider responsibility than the promotion or protection of its own narrow national interests. And this ethic, again, was particularly strong among the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who conducted American foreign policy in these years. If, as seemed clear, the United States possessed a unique or at least an exceptional capacity to affect the course of events on other continents, failure to act would be as consequential as action, and in some circumstances morally culpable. I think that was a very powerful argument and, and, and belief and feeling in 1940-41 and led America to take its part in World War II. But that sense of responsibility is only one of the ways in which the consciousness of the nation's great potential power, which Americans have been more inclined to exaggerate than to underestimate, have affected views and attitudes. This confidence, uh, this, is, this um, sense of American power has also engendered confidence in the ability of the United States to achieve ambitious foreign policy objectives, if it made the necessary effort. And finally, it has nurtured a very large conception of the nation's proper status and influence in world affairs, of its prerogatives, as it were. Um, uh, I now cite Donald Trump. Um, but, um, so all these different uh, beliefs that America was number one, and it was very important that it was number one in this latter case, all these assumptions and attitudes have reflected a sense of power that shaped the state of mind with which Americans approached the choices they made. And that's why it's the title of my book. Thank you. Right, okay, great. Thank you. Um, and thanks so much to, to Nick Witham uh, for inviting uh, John and myself and for putting this together. Uh, sadly, he can't be here uh, due to illness, but I'm grateful to, to Ewan for uh, stepping in. 
Um, I thought what I would do in my talk um, is talk, um, I suppose, discuss how I came to write uh, the second book of mine, uh, World Making, uh, because it really is kind of connected uh, in a very obvious way to my first project, which, uh, as Ewan said, was a biography uh, of Walt Rostow. Um, this may seem a little self-indulgent, so uh, we'll see how, how this goes. So, um, Walt Rostow, um, an economic historian, uh, someone who spent uh, much of his career at MIT uh, uh, working uh, on what became his sort of principal uh, work uh, of economic history, which was uh, The Stages of Economic Growth, a non-communist manifesto, uh, published uh, in 1960 uh, by Cambridge University Press. Now, Rostow, from a very young age, uh, I think he was 18 uh, when he first sort of made this vow at Yale as an undergraduate uh, to answer Karl Marx. Uh, this, is, this is how he described it at this young age. Uh, and uh, this is indeed what he, uh, he did uh, with this book, in which he uh, identifies uh, five uh, stages through which all nations uh, pass, uh, the final stage being uh, the age of high mass consumption. Uh, which is how Rostow, I guess, describes and defines societal uh, nirvana uh, in, in, in some respects. Um, and Rostow's uh, academic work uh, through the 50s, his articles in this book, uh, really um, uh, gathered a lot of attention uh, to himself. Uh, John F. Kennedy uh, became very interested uh, in Rostow's ideas, uh, particularly as they pertain to the developing world. Uh, Rostow was an influential uh, advocate of increased uh, foreign aid. Uh, he uh, was very um, uh, important uh, during the early Kennedy period in setting out a rationale for the Alliance for Progress uh, in Latin America, this large-scale uh, aid program uh, that was implemented through the 1960s. Um, so Kennedy appointed Rostow to be his uh, deputy national security advisor uh, in January 1961, I suppose with a view that Rostow would be good uh, when it comes to foreign aid, when it comes to uh, mitigating or uh, dealing with uh, the appeal of Marxism-Leninism in uh, these nations uh, newly freed uh, from colonial rule. And indeed, there is an influence that one can detect uh, Rostow's ideas on policy as they pertain to foreign aid. Uh, Kennedy... Uh, when launching the Alliance for Progress, talks about a decade of development, uh, which was Rostow's phrase. Uh, he increases the foreign aid budget by 62.5% on the funds provided by Eisenhower. Uh, lots of um, Rostow's ideas uh, seem to be entering the stream of policymaking. But what I was uh, really interested in and what I attend to in the book is how it was that Rostow became uh, an, a very influential, I, I argue anyway, um, uh, advocate of uh, increasing uh, America's commitment, its military commitment uh, to saving uh, South Vietnam. Uh, he was uh, one of the earliest uh, advocates in the Kennedy administration of bombing uh, North Vietnam. He did this in the summer uh, of 1961. Um, through the course of the 1960s, as an advisor to Kennedy and Johnson, he was particularly focused on the efficacy of deploying uh, air power against North Vietnam as a way uh, to stem uh, the north-south uh, flow of material and supplies, uh, but also because this would have a coercive effect uh, on Ho Chi Minh, would uh, ultimately uh, um, um, 
prove to be, or um, the bombing campaign would prove to be such a burden uh, on North Vietnam that it would seize its support uh, for the insurgency uh, in the South. So Rostow, uh, these stages of economic growth, in many ways, they were little more than Marx's, uh, than Marx's dynamic of historical materialism with a different uh, conclusion, liberal capitalist uh, rather uh, than communist. But this stages theory uh, made him almost certain uh, that this bombing would uh, have this coercive effect. And the reason he gave for this uh, runs as follows. So this is 1965. Rostow uh, writes a memo to Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State at that time, and he writes, Ho, Ho Chi Minh has an industrial complex to protect. Uh, he is no longer a guerrilla fighter uh, with nothing to lose. End quote. Now, Rostow's rationale assumed that Ho Chi Minh's priorities were those of his own, uh, namely that the pursuit of economic growth was the overwhelming consideration in peace and war. But of course, the North Vietnamese regime, the government there, was more than willing to take a serious economic hit to further the overwhelming uh, goal of reunification. Uh, Rostow's stages theory seemed uh, to suggest to him uh, that threatening North Vietnam's infrastructure would, would work. Uh, but he ultimately uh, failed to appreciate the power of an ideology that was not beholden to the economic sources that informed his own uh, worldview. So in some respects, what I, what I try to do in this book is uh, show how uh, one, individual, uh, one individual's view of history, uh, his theory of history, uh, comes to influence uh, some of the recommendations he makes uh, in regards in particular to bombing, uh, but also to uh, military escalation more generally. Now, there was a, a, an aspect of this book, uh, or an aspect of the research of the book that I found to be interesting, was this uh, clash uh, that Rostow and George Kennan had in 1962. Rostow drafted this basic statement of national security policy uh, in 1962. It ran to about 279 pages. Incredibly, he was incredibly prolix. Uh, if you go to the Johnson Library and you look at Rostow's uh, papers uh, and then you know, compare Rostow's uh, writings as national secu security advisor uh, over a year to McGeorge Bundy's the previous year, uh, there's like mm -hmm. 10 boxes to one. Uh, you know, so this, this paper was long. Uh, but what he does in the paper is he uh, talks about uh, America's duty uh, to facilitate the modernization of the developing world, uh, using aid uh, to facilitate this movement of nations uh, through the stages, through the gears, uh, to this age of high uh, mass consumption. Um, and Kennan, uh, George Kennan, read this report and he uh, drafted a, a very strong uh, critique, I think it's fair to say. And I quote uh, from it here, your worldview is deeply imbued with a relatively optimistic view of the sources of human behavior, a view when applied to the great mass of humanity I cannot uh, share. Uh, Kennan disliked the presumption uh, that Rostow had that he had discerned some kind of pattern to history, some kind of uh, endpoint to which all nations were heading. Uh, Kennan uh, was particularist. Uh, he was not uh, universalist. In fact, what Kennan went on to say later on in this memo uh, is that societies that have enjoyed any kind of success in the world uh, have their origins on or near the North Sea. Uh, this is how he phrases it in his response to Rostow. Um, a very Kennan uh, 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 observation to make because he was so focused and so interested uh, in climate 
uh, and the, uh, the, the vital role that climate played in uh, the success or otherwise of nations. So as Kenan would have it, nations shed geopolitical significance the closer they were to the equator, hence this uh, uh, comment regarding the North Sea. But this uh, clash was revealing, I think, in, in lots of different ways. And I think it was Rostow's uh, scientism. Uh, it was Rostow's belief that he had unearthed a theory uh, that uh, explained the course of world history that really riled uh, Kenan in lots of ways. And then I came to sort of discover that Kenan, uh, in, I think it was 1946, uh, proposed the establishment uh, of a new type of foreign service academy uh, in D.C. that would kind of emulate uh, in its approach or in its uh, intention uh, the uh, Naval Academy at Annapolis. And Kenan wrote this uh, paper talking or mentioning what the curriculum should look like and what students should read, uh, you know, what was really required reading if you were going to be a wise, sagacious shaper of foreign policy. And it was history, it was philosophy, it was literature, absolutely. Uh, the social sciences, uh, he had no time for at all. Uh, he cautioned, international relations are not a science, cannot be treated as such. Uh, Kenan, uh, and this belief, uh, or this viewpoint, I think, uh, comes across <laughs> in this response uh, to, uh, to Rostow. So it got me thinking that perhaps I could uh, place Rostow and his era in a kind of a broader context. So what I try and do uh, with the first book is use Rostow's ideas to kind of um, examine uh, wider trends in US foreign policy uh, through the course of the 1960s. And um, with the, the second book, uh, World Making, uh, I identified uh, nine individuals uh, that kind of allow me to do this. Uh, I've identified I individuals whose ideas were either ascendant in uh, or in some ways representative of uh, particular eras. I should say that I didn't include a chapter on Rostow because I couldn't bear to go back and write a 15,000-word chapter on a, on, a, on a book that I'd already written. Um, so in some ways, the first book is like chapter seven and a, seven and a half <laughs> in this book uh, between... Uh, Nitza and uh, Kissinger. So the individuals that I've, I, I look at in the book, I have chapters on each, uh, are Alfred Thayer Mahan, Woodrow Wilson, uh, Charles Beard, Walter Lippmann, uh, George Kennan, Paul Nitza, Henry Kissinger, Paul Wolfowitz, and uh, finally, uh, Barack Obama. Um, now, it's appropriate that I'm sitting next to uh, John uh, this evening because we had a conversation back in 2004, I think it was, as to who might populate uh, this book, and John's comments and insights were, were really useful uh, at that time. Um, and what I try and do in the book is not write a series of discrete potted biographies because that would be, uh, I think, rather dull. Uh, what I've attempted to do is to create a dialogue uh, between these individuals. I haven't written cradle-to-grave biographies in any way uh, at all. Uh, so the chapter on Walter Lippmann, for example, focuses very much on the period 1940 uh, to 1945, uh, using Lippmann's journalism, using Lippmann's ideas on how the United States should uh, best uh, engage itself in the world, best assist uh, Great Britain in this conflict. Uh, so I use Lippmann as a particular vantage point uh, on a particular era. Uh, similarly, the chapter on Kennan, uh, I look at the period 1945 to 1950, uh, more or less, when Kennan leaves uh, government to join uh, the Institute for Advanced Study. 
uh, at Princeton. So the, 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 the intention is to create a dialogue, not uh, to write a series of discrete biographies. And I suppose the model uh, for this book, uh, or there were a couple of models, one was uh, Louis Menon's book, The Metaphysical Club, a uh, wonderful history of the emergence of pragmatism in the United States. Uh, the other actually was a book that I read a few years ago, uh, History of Classical Music in the 20th Century by Alex Ross, uh, called The Rest is Noise, uh, which is this fantastic book that uh, looks at a series of, of composers, uh, looks at the, uh, the, the music that was created, but also places these, these composers in conversation uh, with one another as the book progresses. And so this is what I've attempted to do here. Uh, clearly, with somebody like Kennan, uh, this was, uh, Kennan was a gift. Uh, having lived to 101, uh, I could uh, bring Kennan in to some of these later chapters on Nitza, on Kissinger, uh, on Wolfowitz. I mean, Kissinger, uh, sorry, Kennan uh, was a, a critic uh, of the move to war in Iraq uh, in 2003. Uh, he kept a diary uh, from the age of uh, like age 11 to age 99, and the Canon Diaries were just a wonderful uh, resource to use. Uh, so this this dialogue, I guess, is is what I've tried to uh, uh, set out. But also, as as I was writing the book, uh, I guess it came to me that um, when I when I began, I kind of thought, well, this is going to end up being a book that considers realists, idealists to some degree isolationist, although that's a problematic term in some ways, although uh, Charles Beard, his, his view was not, uh, or he didn't uh, self-identify as an isolationist, but as a continental uh, Americanist. But these categories are often used uh, to consider and to discuss uh, US foreign policy, realism versus idealism. Uh, Woodrow Wilson on the one hand and Henry Kissinger uh, on the other. But as I uh, researched the book, as I read more into it, I decided that art versus science might be an interesting uh, binary uh, to deploy, not to replace uh, realism versus idealism with another binary, art versus science, but to kind of uh, introduce uh, an, an illuminating, I hope in a way, uh, background uh, theme that really uh, helps us uh, get at the ambition uh, of much of what the United States attempted to do uh, through the 20th century. And I mentioned that Kennan had this idea uh, for this curriculum for his Foreign Service Academy. Uh, well, Paul Nitzer also had his ideas about uh, the type of um, education or the type of curriculum uh, that should be set up and established to educate diplomats. So in 1943, Nitzer uh, with Christian Herter set up the School for Advanced International Study in Washington, D.C., which later became attached to Johns Hopkins University. Nitzer at the time, uh, there's an interview with him that, uh, in, in which he discusses this. He said, essentially, well, I looked at what, what was being written on foreign policy, and it was all history. Uh, nobody was really taking this subject seriously from a theoretical, uh, social scientific uh, perspective. And what Nitzer sought to do in establishing what would become Johns Hopkins Science is to try and move away from historical understandings of US foreign policy and to bring in the social sciences, insights from the social sciences, uh, political science, economics, psychology. And of course, these are very important to Nitza as his career uh, develops. So I felt that the canon with his ideas of philosophy and literature, Nitza uh, with his belief that the, the social science should be integral, uh, these were kind of nice and interesting and intriguing uh, differences between the two. 
So each of the individuals that I discuss in the book then approached foreign policy with different manners of thought and expression. Uh, their education, their subsequent disciplinary preferences were quite different. Uh, some were drawn primarily to history, philosophy and literature. Uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, uh, George Kennan, Henry Kissinger, uh, which tended oftentimes to impart a sense of tragedy, of caution, of a reluctance to depart from observed historical uh, precedent. Uh, but others, I argue in the book, uh, Wilson, uh, Nitza, uh, Wolfowitz, were trained in or sympathetic to the social sciences, political science, economics, psychology, uh, later the fledgling discipline of international relations. And each were more inclined to view the world as makeable, following the identification, the application of the appropriate patterns and theories. And this is why Rostow and his theories uh, led very much to, to, to the writing uh, of this book. Individuals possessed of such ideas often seek to transcend history rather than operate within its observed confines, to do things that have never been tried. Now, the appeal of uh, scientism is not difficult to comprehend. It holds out a promise of certainty, permitting the United States to understand, to tame uh, the world's volatility that's highly seductive. It's an optimistic creed that, res uh, that resonates with America's self-image as exceptional, as capable of making the world it leads. Denying America's ability to cure the world's evils is thus viewed as defeatist, rather un-American, amoral, uh, European, declinist, uh, all these charges that have been levelled at Mahan, Cannon, Kissinger, and of course, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, the grouping of artists, uh, as I describe them, or pessimists, I suppose, as their critics might have it, comprising Mahan, Littman, Cannon, uh, Kissinger, and Obama, uh, believe, uh, conversely, that evil is a permanent fixture in the morals and the habits of mankind, uh, that the applica uh, application of superficial remedies is often the best that any uh, foreign policymaker can do. Uh, you get a sense of this with Obama, uh, I think, and you, 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 over, over the course of his administration. Uh, in an interview uh, with David Remnick in The New Yorker, uh, he uh, says at one point, you know, people think I have a joystick with which I'm able to maneuver precise outcomes. Uh, this simply uh, is not possible. Uh, in a blurb uh, for a reissue of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's The Irony of American History, Obama wrote, uh, I take away from his works the compelling idea that there's serious evil in the world and hardship and pain, um, and we should be humble and modest in our belief that we can eliminate those things, uh, but this shouldn't be used uh, as an excuse for cynicism. Alfred Thayer Mahan, writing in 1897, let us worship peace indeed as the goal at which humanity must hope to arrive, but let us not fancy that peace is to be had as a boy wrenches an unripe fruit uh, from a tree. Um, so this, these categories, I think, can be quite useful in thinking uh, about uh, US foreign policy in this period. Uh, to, to give just a, one more example, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, at the Paris Peace Conference, um, what Wilson uh, sought to achieve uh, with his elevation of a League of Nations uh, to geopolitical centrality. Uh, Edward House uh, described as the achievement or the possibility of achieving a scientific peace, uh, one that promised to cure uh, the ailments afflicting the world uh, that were present and that weren't being attended to by the system of the balance of power 
uh, through the 19th century. Uh, the League of Nations, the hopes that Wilson vested in it, uh, were uh, abstract, uh, untested. Uh, they were not, as it would become clear, an actionable reality at that time. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, who I discussed in the penultimate chapter, um, he, you know, his first job was in the Nixon administration, but he was also an advisor to Jimmy Carter and wrote a number of pretty interesting papers uh, through this period. And he focused very early on uh, on the threat posed by Saddam Hussein, on the importance of Iraq uh, to uh, the Middle East. And ultimately, post 9-11, uh, Wolfowitz made a strong case that Afghanistan uh, was not the priority issue, that a first order uh, or the first order priority uh, was to invade uh, Iraq, depose Saddam Hussein, create a functioning democracy in the Middle East that would serve uh, as a beacon uh, for the rest of the region. Again, there is a, uh, an ambition, uh, there is a theory uh, undergirding uh, what Wolfowitz uh, sought to achieve, and it's kind of evident or that comes out in, this is rather... Uh, unconventional ending uh, with my epigraphs uh, that begin the book. Uh, but Wolfowitz here, uh, history is just littered with problems uh, that were solved that were supposed to be impossible. This is how Wolfowitz viewed uh, Iraq uh, at this time. When people uh, queried uh, Wolfowitz's ambitions, the possibility that a functioning democracy could really be created in Iraq, uh, Wolfowitz would say, well, the United States achieved this in Japan in West Germany uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War. Why can't we do this in the Middle East? Why can't we do this in Iraq? Again, uh, Wolfowitz, I think, was susceptible uh, to scientism. So, um, you know, to, to conclude, uh, essentially, um, this, this book, in a kind of probably overly ambitious way, uh, attempts to kind of uh, write an intellectual history uh, of U.S. foreign policy uh, from... Uh, the late 19th century uh, to the present, uh, using uh, these uh, categories, art and science, uh, to provide uh, an extra sort of layer of, of, of understanding. Now, you could probably tell I'm probably more sympathetic to those who view a foreign policy as an art than I am uh, to those who view it uh, as a science or that can aspire to the certainties uh, of science. Uh, but the traits of the artist... Uh, intuition, uh, creativity are not the only diplomatic virtues, clearly. Uh, presidents, uh, this notion that presidents must simply react, uh, that proactivity is an impossible dream, uh, I wouldn't want to uh, overdraw that. The sequence of foreign policy innovations that the U.S. spearheaded from 1945 to 1949, uh, the creation of the U.N., Bretton Woods, uh, the Marshall Plan, the creation of NATO, uh, collectively, I think, uh, were uh, highly uh, impressive. Uh, but they were also a series of strategies, uh, plural, uh, advocated by various individuals at different times with diverging motivations and goals. The process of their devising was organic, uh, did not follow a master plan. Uh, led by the efforts of uh, memoirists and historians, a sequence of discrete initiatives spanning a presidency is often reconceived as something larger, as something more deliberate. Uh, but this omniscient narrator is not always detectable in the archival record. So while not a Rosetta Stone, I do think art and science is a binary uh, worth considering. Uh, and the uncertainty of history 
is the most significant obstacle, I think, to approaching uh, foreign policy as uh, a science. In his 2014 book, World Order, Henry Kissinger, uh, in a rare <laughs> moment of humility, I guess, uh, confessed that he was brash, quote, at Harvard uh, to proclaim on the meaning of history. This was the title of his undergraduate dissertation. I now know that history's meaning is a matter to be discovered, uh, not declared, uh, Kissinger writes uh, in this book. Unless every nation is united behind a common goal, uh, nothing in international affairs is possessed of stable properties. Uh, many experiments conceived as stark departures uh, from historical precedent have failed abysmally. And the bolder the experiment, uh, oftentimes, as I argue in the book, uh, the greater uh, the failure. But I shall stop uh, there.